podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to the Paddock and the Pavilion in this fabulous Ashes summer. On today's show, I will take you back to the first glory days of women's test cricket when it all began in the 1930s through the words of my Australian guest, Nick Richardson. If you love history and cricket, even just history, this is the podcast for you. My interview with Nick took place on the 15th of May. Hello, Nick. Thanks for joining me on the Paddock and the Pavilion. Pleasure to be here, Stephen. Thanks for having me. How are you? Okay? Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah. Well, it's a double Ashes year. Are you excited? Always excited for the Ashes. And uh, one of the great things about the Ashes this time around is that the women are actually playing their first five-day test. So that's going to be at um, Trent Bridge uh, in June. So I think that will add an extra degree of spice to what is always a good contest. Certainly, yeah. We hopefully then won't. We've had a lot of, of draws in the uh, women's test. Hopefully, with five days, we'll get a we'll get a result. Yeah, I think that's the plan. And I know Heather Knight, the the English captain, has been very keen on on advocating for five days, and and Meg Lanning here in Australia has as well. So I think there's no no uh, absence of commitment to the idea, and I, I think uh, we can optimistically expect a result. In fairness, the last England-Australia test in Australia was an incredible match. Ah, yes, 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 yes. And, I mean, I think it it speaks to the how longer format um, of the contest can actually reveal how closely matched the two teams are. And I think that's – I think we'll see that again this year as well. Well, on today's podcast, we're going to focus a lot on the – first two test series between England and Australia and we talked off air air about the the glory days of the 1930s but to start with I just wanted to let listeners know a bit more about Nick Richardson Um, I know you from the uh, fabulous uh, the Maiden Summer podcast but what can you tell me about yourself oh uh, that's an interesting question I don't often (laughs) Get that opportunity. Thank you for giving it to me. Uh, look, I'm a journalist, an academic, and and author, uh, and podcaster. Um, I uh, after I finished my cadetship on a regional Tasmanian newspaper in Australia, I uh, finished up as a sports reporter, and I I uh, freelanced on the 1985 Ashes tour and wrote about the dominance of the 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 English team on that particular tour and I I, I I think it was probably one of one of Australia's worst sides that we've sent overseas nonetheless um, I stayed on in in England for a couple of years and actually played a very uh, very badly for uh, Horsham Caledonians Cricket Club in West Sussex had a couple of seasons with them before returning to Australia, so um, I've got a I've got a doctorate in sports history from the University of Melbourne. I've written or edited um, several books, and Maiden Summer, which is about effectively the not just the the two series that we're going to talk about, but about the history of women's cricket in Australia, uh, was released 
um, to coincide with the last Ashes series. We will sort of talk about some other things apart from those two series, but uh, you mentioned 1985. Touchwood, one of my future guests on this podcast, to talk about his Ashes memories is Richard Ellison. I won't tell him that uh, it was the worst ever Australian touring sign. No, please don't. <laughs> I think there were a few other candidates for that uh, for that description, and certainly, um, you know, a lot of the Australian press and the English press have used that phrase about similar uh, occurrences. And I think you know Martin Johnson at the Independent said it about the uh, what was it, the England team that came to Australia in was it eighty six eighty seven they couldn't bat they couldn't bowl and they couldn't field and and they very soon turned that around and finish up. Um, that was Mike Gatting's team. I think they won the Ashes fairly comprehensively. I wanted to start, Nick, by asking you why the 1930s cricket was so popular. I think there are a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them was in the post-war, post-First World War period in particular, there was a, a women in, in this, in, during the war found there were things for them to do. There were roles that they could play. They became involved in things that had hitherto not been part of their life or um and as a consequence there was this there was this blossoming of opportunities that included opportunities for physical activity and recreation that had not been present before the war so there there was that element that actually fed through into the post-war period of um an engagement with recreation and an engagement with sport that had, that had not been there before the war. So there was the social shifts that the war triggered uh, had their consequences too and played out in that broader um, recreational period, recreational um, life opportunity. The second thing was that there were, and it was kind of interrelated in its way, was that there were. Um, newspapers in particular were uh, had been become integral to people's lives as a consequence of the war coverage and there were opportunities within the the growth of newspapers for discussions and coverage of women's sport uh, and there were um, that came with uh, opportunities for women to write about women's sports. So there was this, so there was, um, there were opportunities, there was the games, proliferation of games, and there was opportunities within mainstream media coverage for these sports to be covered and read about. So they all fed into this kind of dynamic environment where women's sport in particular suddenly had this, or, you know, uh, had acquired a um, an audience uh, in ways that um, it had not had for years, and so it, it kind of reached a kind of peak interest in the thirties, uh, in and would perhaps rival uh, the kind of coverage that we we see these days. And from an Australian perspective, was women's cricket played by all classes of society? compared to what was happening in England? 
Yeah, and I think that's a really important distinction to make. The, the Australians, uh, and, you know, I, th- I think it's equally true of men's cricket as well, but certainly in terms of women's cricket in Australia, it was, it had been played at a range of levels. Um, for a lot of Australian women, it was the game they played with their brothers or their dads. Uh, and these were backyard games or in the street games. And there was a there was a s- small component of women who played it at school in Australia. Uh, and uh, but they were a particular kind of schools. Um, and for most in the public school, you know, the state school system in Australia, as it's called, um, it was cricket was not available to very many women. So it was it was a game that was played recreationally um, with family or neighbours, whereas in England I think the opposite was true, that it was very much a middle-class game uh, that was patronised through uh, some schools and some universities but um, linked quite explicitly in the early years to women's hockey as well. And through my own research, the first women's match in England is 1745 it's it's later than that in australia yes it is um although um as raf nicholson points out there was very little in in the victorian england to support the development of women's cricket in australia the first real game was played in 1874 in one of the former um gold mining towns in victoria and bendigo but once it started in australia there there were a number of games that soon followed in the next 10 to 15 years in Sydney um, and in, of all places, Tasmania, uh, where there was signs of actually the first organised women's cricket um, in Australia with several teams playing in a, in a small part of um, southern Tasmania. So there was, there was very much a, a different um, historical model um, emerging uh, between the two countries. And for listeners, when were national organisations first started? Uh, in the mid-1920s for, for England and um, a little bit later for Australia. But the interesting thing, of course, was it's worthwhile pointing out that Australia wasn't really federated, officially federated, until 1901. Uh, and there was still very strong state parochial um, associations for for some time and in fact the Victorian State Association um, which was established in 1905 was a very vigorous association and predated the um, creation of the National Association some 20 odd years later. Now the first test match began on December the 28th 1934 but just to go back who approached who and how did sort of the the, the sort of beginnings of the thought of playing a test match between Australia and England begin? Well, it's, it was kind of one of those, I suppose, serendipitous events. And, and I think, in a sense, the boldness of the ambition might well strike us these days as being quite remarkable. But back in the day, uh, if we look at the context, I think it, it, it's a really interesting moment in time. Just bear in mind, in 1932, 1933, we've, we've had the, the, the bitterness 
uh, and the acrimony and the controversy of the, the body line series, 32, 33, and Larwood and Bradman and all of that. So there is a heightened sense of uh, animosity, perhaps, and that what you, what had been quite a dignified uh, competitive environment of the Ashes had suddenly become something a little more sinister and a little more dark, especially for the Australians. So it took, I think, a fair bit of ambition on the the leading Australian administrator of the day, Margaret Peden in Sydney, to actually approach English Cricket Association to see if they would be interested in making a tour to Australia. Now, not only was it ambitious in terms of all those other things that were going on, the Australian Women's Cricket Council only had 14 shillings in the bank. So they were not in a particularly financially robust situation to extend that invitation. So for for England to accept, it meant that only those who had the financial wherewithal to afford to come to Australia and could afford the time to do so would be um, would make up that first touring team. So that was the kind of the, the context. But uh, it kind of it, once it got underway, it it had a had a great momentum behind it. You mentioned time. How long did it take the the England team to get across to Australia? Oh, several months because they were on board ship. But of course, the beauty of that was it actually helped them bond uh, as a group. And I think, uh, as we might discuss, um, I think that 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 travelling together for a disparate group of individuals was a powerful force that I think set them up for success. And similarly for the Australians going back the other way in, in several years later. And how long a tour was it? How many games did the England team play in Australia? They didn't play very many to begin with, simply because um, the, the standard of competition wasn't great. They started with uh, a competition uh, game against Western Australia in Perth, and that was that was pretty one-sided. There was a game against Queensland in Brisbane as a precursor to the first test at the Gabba in Brisbane. Uh, they played a New South Wales side and, and a Victorian team, uh, but it was quite different to the structure of the return series when Australia went back in 1937 because they had the Australian women played 21 games on that tour so there were there were fewer games all up um, for the for the English women but the great thing about it was that the schedule enabled them to peak interest and there were the game in WA had had really big crowds and as a consequence uh, it started to fill the coffers of the Australian Women's Cricket Association, which made the 1937 tour a far more achievable uh, ambition um, for the for the women going back the other way. Going into that first Test match, what can you tell me about the two teams? So the the English team was very settled. You know, as I said, they they were kind of um, they they knew each other. They They'd, re- they'd practised on, on the ship coming out. They had felt that they were seasoned. Um, Betty Archdale, the English captain, uh, was was picked in, was, 
was a great selection in many ways, although she'd kind of, uh, as, as captain, because she her mother was a suffragette. She had been, she kind of understood politics instinctively um, and she was in so many ways the right person uh, to be marshalling the English team into this broader political context around the the aftermath of Bodyline. She she led a, a really seasoned team, uh, Myrtle McLaglan, who was um, became, I think, probably one of England's finest women cricketers. This was her opportunity to shine. Betty Snowball, her opening partner. Uh, there was a there was they were they were a far more experienced team than the Australians who assembled in under Margaret Peden's captaincy in in Brisbane, um, barely knowing each other, barely having played with each other, and from quite disparate parts of Australia, from from Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, um, and the the lack of experience at that level and the lack of exposure to long-form cricket uh, certainly meant that England entered that that first test at, at Brisbane uh, as the favourites. You mentioned Betty Archdale. I've been reading a bit about her. She was quite an interesting character. I, I read that she visited her mother in prison, didn't she, um, as part of the suffragette yeah. movement. She also lobbied yeah. lobbied the League of Nations on gender equality. She was quite ahead of her time. She was incredibly ahead of her time, and um, but I think one of the she she went to Holloway Jail to visit her mother uh, when she was a, a little girl, and uh, uh, one of the interesting things about uh, her mother was that she uh, she'd been educated in Scotland and in in was delighted that Betty wanted to be educated in Scotland as well, um, and ultimately. It was through that education at St Andrews in 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 Scotland that Betty's love of sport was fostered. Um, so she was she was an extraordinary character who, um, without giving away the uh, story's ending too much, finished up um, becoming migrating to Australia and becoming a principal of one of Sydney's finest girls' school, where she championed. Uh, the girls' cricket and until um, till her retirement. And interestingly too, she became a bit of a, a media personality, appearing on Australian television chat shows and at one stage was um, identified as one of Australia's national living treasures. Uh, and that's an ex- ex-England captain. <laughs> Indeed. There are two, I think that's a rare endorsement of, um, of Betty Archer. Moving on to the the cricket itself, three test matches. The first one in Brisbane, they were six ball overs as well. Yeah, they were. So there was there was a kind of a negotiation made about whether it would be the six ball over or the eight ball over, um, uh, and Australians had, had favoured the eight ball over. And there was also a discussion about the size of the ball. Um, and I anyway, so we we went with a, a slightly smaller ball and a and a. I think and a, uh, and the six ball over. So it, and and they were um, they were in those days only um, three day tests. So there wasn't there wasn't um, 
and understanding that the game needed to be any longer than that. And in some ways, though, for most of the Australian women, even three days was a bit of a stretch. So uh, England, England at the Gabba showed fairly comprehensively that they knew how to play a longer form of cricket and they won. They won that test in, in pretty fine style. Yeah, it didn't go well for the Australians in the first innings. No, they were uh, they were skittled fairly early, and um, and Myrtle had made a bit of a made a bit of a mess of them. Really, um, she she'd taken took seven for not very many, and and the Aussies had, couldn't reach a hundred. And then Myrtle went out with a bat and, and made seventy odd, and uh, showed showed her class, I think, and and the Australians. Australians rebounded a little in the second innings, but they were too far behind in the end and, and finished up losing uh, losing by um, nine wickets in the end. So it was it was a pretty one sided affair. And then and then the teams moved to Sydney for the second test. Crowds though were 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 good. Crowds were great, and it was you know several. So the first day there were. Uh, in Brisbane, there were three to four thousand, and I think by the third day they'd gone up to five. So it, that's a really significant size crowd, and I think that kind of goes to our first point, Stephen, about um, the the amount of media interest. Um, there was great coverage, and the reporters on the, the ground were, in fact, cricketers themselves. Carly Hansen, who was writing for the local Brisbane paper, the Courier Mail, uh, had played for did play for Queensland women's cricket team and, in fact, um, had been part of the team against the, the tourists in the lead-up to the, uh, the first test. Um, and she was, she was covering the, the match. She was also a, a, a hockey player in the, in the Australian winter but was a, was a particularly um, well-regarded uh, cricketer uh, and had an excellent career as a sports journalist at the, at the Brisbane paper. So there was those crowds were, were in great shape. And, of course, by the time we get to Sydney, we've actually now got cameras, the, the movie tone cameras have turned up to, to cover the test because there's now such an interest in them. And the footage of the Sydney test just shows the crowds are engaged. They're, they're really up for the contest. You said the SCG, that's quite significant. And they also played at the MCG. It was a long time. That was, the, the I think, the third test of the MCG, is it? Um, yes. They, it was a long time until they played at Lords. Well, that's the thing. And one of the, one of the England players kind of reflected on, on how, um, what a privilege they felt to have been given access to the MCG because they actually used the same change rooms that, um, the England men's team had used, you know, Hobbs, Sutcliffe, all those great names in the visitors' change rooms at the MCG uh, were available for the English women in that particular series. And um, Hugh Trumbull, who was the secretary of the Melbourne Cricket Club at the time and for one of the great Australian test cricketers of his generation, had no hesitation in allowing the English women to have access to the change rooms or indeed any other part of the Melbourne cricket ground, which 
considered itself as the Antipodean equivalent of the MCC, but they were certainly very open to the English women's team being, having access all areas. It wasn't until 1976 that the Australian and England women actually played at Lords. So that's um, 40 years later. How did the Australians fare in the last two tests? So another bruising defeat in Sydney, uh, but by Melbourne. And I think this is, this is where we start to see that kind of that quick learning that um, uh, comes from exposure to high-quality competition. By the third test in Melbourne, we've actually got a draw. So things have started to settle, and, and I think there's a sense that the Australians are actually now have some of the measure of, of the English team. And I think what we're seeing in that third test, uh, the discovery of um, an Australian cricketer who became known as the Girl Grimmett, named after the Australian league spinner Clary Grimmett, and her name was Peggy Antonio, who was a teenager um, and, and a, a league spinner of some, some rare skill. And uh, Betty Archdale said afterwards, she was an uh, praised Peggy's bowling, and she said, "You know, we'd never seen anything like Peggy before. Uh, she was quite nasty," Betty said, in terms of the the movement that she got off the wicket. And you know, it was a it was a significant um, performance from from Peggy. Um, she took six six wickets at the MCG, and I think she planted one of those seeds of doubt in in among some of the English batters. Uh, which took root and flourished um, uh, because she had a, a very fine tour of England in 1937. Do we know how the two teams got on on and off the field? Well, this is one of the interesting things, I think, and it goes to your point that you raised earlier around uh, the backgrounds of each of the teams. And uh, for a couple of the Australian women, you know, Peggy... Um, and a couple of her friends, including the all-rounder Nell McClarty, who were uh, from working-class backgrounds. Peggy's father was a Chilean dockside worker in Melbourne who died when she was young. Uh, Nell McClarty's mother had died when she was a baby and she was raised by her aunt. Uh, they, were, they worked in working-class roles uh, and cricket to them was very much a recreation. And they, in interviews subsequently, they remarked on how different they felt uh, to a lot of the middle-class women, not just on the England side, but also from the uh, some of the Australian women like Margaret Peden, who, whose father was a professor of law at the University of Sydney uh, and had been raised through the... Uh, the uh, private school system in Australia. There was there, there were clearly some class distinctions, although all of the Australian women got on very well with Betty Archdale, which perhaps tells you why she um, finished up migrating here. Yeah, we mustn't forget players are all all amateur, aren't they? They are, and that's the that's that's the difference. So it it becomes very much a case of. Um, you know, the distinctions in the men's game between amateurs and professionals were certainly not the case with the women and the distinctions were ones more driven by class rather than uh, than money. 
But the series must have been considered a success because Australia then toured England in 1937. It was a huge success in in a couple of ways. As I said, the, the Australian Women's Cricket uh, Council had so little financial reserves, but this tour, the the English tour, generated more than three hundred pounds, which was a significant amount back in that day, and it, it gave gave the Australian women confidence that they could then go and and tour England uh, in nineteen thirty seven. So so that was one significant bonus. The second one was that it generated such such interest in Australia and had kind of suggested that if this could work for the women as a as a competition then surely as the men had the uh, had, had the opportunity to tour then so should the australian women so so that became um uh, a logical outcome of of the success of that first tour and then the the third element was one that was actually um quite significant and that was the sense that by the end of that tour, um, Australian women were competitive with the English team, and that's that's a really significant um, significant element going forward as well, because it means that they feel like that that they're not going to be um, outplayed uh, when they go back to England. Yeah, talking about going back to England, um, that. The actual trip across must have, like the England team, bonded the Australian players together. And I'm intrigued by the listening to the Maiden Summer about the behaviour code uh, for the Australian players on the boat. Yes, so the, one of the first things was that they they weren't allowed to take husbands, which was perhaps just as you know, not many of them were. I think only one of them was married at that stage, but nonetheless. So no, no husbands, no companions, no uh, smoking, no drinking. They were not allowed up to the upper decks after a certain time of day. It was an extraordinarily uh, conservative approach um, to how they would behave. Because bear in mind, this was still an era when, for single women in particular, uh, chaperones were considered um, de rigueur. Uh, but in this case, uh, the women were expected to not only look after themselves but behave themselves. Um, so they had to make their own fun, uh, and that fun had to be uh, <laughs> literally above board <laughs> in every sense of the phrase. But when they came to England, where 1937... Uh, they, I think they went to the coronation and, and they also went to Downing Street. They did. And, in fact, the, the, they, met the, the, um, they met the Prime Minister, uh, whose wife is actually a, was, a, was a cricket umpire. Um, and uh, the coronation was a, was a significant event for them and they got special, t- special seats. Uh, they felt, I think, in the end that the, the whole experience was uh, an extraordinary insight uh, into another world for them. And for those players like Nell and Peggy who had come from such hard upbringings, it was an extraordinary uh, experience, that one that stayed with them for years. Yes, it's easy 
to forget how much we all travel nowadays, how little travel people, certainly working class people, would have done in the 1930s. It was unheard of. And, you know, if it hadn't have been for the generosity of a range of people, those those women would not have been able to take that that opportunity. So it was it was life changing, I think. First test in England was played at the county ground in Northampton starting on the twelfth of June. And I, and I was going to mention in that first test, Eileen Whelan, who became Eileen Ash, uh, who actually was the first woman cricketer to reach uh, a century in age. She was the lady that rang the bell for the 2017 England versus India World Cup final. She played in that first test match. Ah, uh, right. Okay. Okay. I wasn't aware of that connection. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, you see, um, the, although um, it was at Northampton, there were that, there were 5,000 in that that first day. So there was, you know, we're seeing a similar level of interest in England to that which we saw in Australia. Um, and that's that's terrific. And that is the first first win the Australian women have in the in, in so that's their fourth test and that's their first win. Um, and they win by, by thirty one runs, which is not a lot, but it's it, it was a it was a great result. And a competitive series next test at Stanley Park in Blackpool, and the third test at the Oval. Yes, still a good crowd at the Oval, uh, more than six thousand, um, and that's that's a drawn match. Um, so the series is 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 one all. So um, that that's probably a really good reflection of where the two teams are in terms of their ability. It marks, I think, a significant increase in the standard of the Australians. Uh, but it also says something, I think, about how good the competition is um, and the scores, you know, in, in that series, like that first test at Northampton, Australia makes 300. They make 300 again in, in Blackpool. So there's, there's actually some batting. The, the batting is getting better and, and the bowling is, is testing on for, for both padding teams. So I think there's a real there's a real sense here that by the end of this series in 1937 we're seeing two teams that are being very well matched providing some really interesting and absorbing cricket. Um, and that's that's a, you know that marks I think a really great point of of where women's cricket has progressed really quickly. And then of course we get the war. Just going back, do we know that the makeup of the crowds in in England were there lots of women watching the games? There were some women, but I think um, uh, I think there's still a lot of men who are interested in the game, and and I think that's a, that's that says something. But I, of course, the other thing is um, the coverage in the papers um, is still largely in the sports pages. So there's also an audience of male readers now as well uh, of women's sport, in addition to women, women's natural um, curiosity about about what's going on with sport for them. And our campaigner Betty Archdale, the England captain, didn't play the first two Test matches. 
No, she, she'd she been a bit out of form and um, they'd handed the captaincy to Molly Hyde, who became a significant player over a number of years. Uh, Betty found her way back, I think, into the third test team, but um, uh, Betty had also become, uh, I, I think, had been playing less and she'd had some injuries as well. So, um, so, so Molly stepped up and and um, became um, a worthy successor to Betty. The Paddock and the Pavilion has a fabulous archive of over two hundred episodes. On the subject of women's test cricket, I recently spoke to former England centurion Catherine Leng about her memories of the Ashes. Here's a short clip from episode two hundred and four. How different was it playing test matches against Australia, Catherine, than playing against India and New Zealand? Yeah, and I mean, it was com- completely different. I think I played one home series and, and one away series. The away series, we we actually played at test venues. So we played at the Gabba, uh, Brisbane and Sydney. But yeah, it was a totally different game, but um, just competitive every ball was competitive just maybe because of the england australia rivalry i don't know but the next england tour presumably was cancelled because of the war what was the effect of the second world war on women's cricket well it's an interesting thing because there are similar patterns um that observed in the first world war that um that become, I would argue, more pronounced in World War II because there are more women taking on roles across the board in in war-related occupations, but also through um, the RAFs and the RENs and all of those kinds of things. And there is a sense that those organisations, as part of the way they operate, uh, they provide recreational opportunities uh, so there is there are there's organised sport for a lot of women, either in those um, munitions factories or, or other occupations, um, and of course over the duration of the war, um, they find lots of opportunities for recreation amongst themselves. So what happens when the war ends is that um, there is this what Raf Nicholson appropriately calls pent-up demand for sport, so that there is this this rush to organise sport in the aftermath of the war. But what's occurred, of course, is that um, men come back from the war. Some of them are physically debilitated and mentally debilitated, so their physical capacities for engagement in, in sport are compromised. But in more telling ways, they go back into the roles that that women had occupied. So there is now a shift, social shift, um, and families uh, become priority. Um, and so uh, although there is this drive and desire for sport to, to resume, as it does, and the first um, reconvention of the, the women's contest comes in 1948-49, there is a period that then follows where the regularity of the the contest and the quality of the contest is perhaps not 
as strong as it could have been. But in the 40s and the 50s, the test matches, certainly in Australia, they were still playing at major grounds and getting good crowds. They were, but the um, bear in mind that although it was there was a, a 1951 series, there was another six years before the next competition took place. So there was there were lots of things that conspired to prevent uh, it happening on a more regular basis. It fell out of the natural rhythm that had been started to be established before the war. Uh, and by the time we get to the 60s, there is a sense that the impetus that had been even evident in the late 1940s had started to dissipate and, and wither uh, because there was so many other things that people were starting to become interested in. And as a result, the, the crowd started to fall away. The number of women who were interested in playing the game found that there were other things to do. And, and of course, you know, the 50s was that, that decade where, in Australia in particular, where there was a, a kind of a, a rise in consumerism. There was a determination to embrace uh, suburban life uh, and a lot of those things that had previously been encouraged around women's sport became supplanted by a more conservative social agenda, which meant that families took priority over recreation at that time. And all this time when England are playing Australia, they're not playing actually for the Ashes. That didn't start officially until 1998. Can you let listeners know how that happened? So there was a, as you say, that it wasn't described as the Ashes until 1998 when the decision was made that something had to be done about this. And in fact, um, uh, there was a, a little uh, barbecue, uh, a signed mini bat, and a ball, and and in a in a, a small but significant ceremony uh, at Lords. Uh, these things were burnt um, and a replica or a special kind of trophy that, that, that is the women's ashes was, was made from that, that particular ceremony and turned into a trophy that has become uh, the ashes for women as we know it today. So it, it, it was a significant moment because it recognised the separate competition but it also made the direct connection to the tradition that had distinguished cricket between our two countries for such a long time. So it was it was a it was a it was a great moment, a significant moment. And although we, I don't think historically it's fair to refer to those first games back in 1934 uh, as being the first of the women's ashes, I think we can see them as being the precursors to what then became the women's ashes and they are no less valid because they don't carry that name. 
And in the 21st century, the, the, the women's game has, has gone from strength to strength. I'm just a list of a few things. Uh, 2014, um, England first, there were some first paid contracts for England women players. Mm-hmm. The BBL, the WBBL started in 20, 2015. We had a pack lords for that uh, World Cup final England in India in 2017. Then in 2020, just before COVID, um, we had 86,000 at the MCG for Australia and India in that T20 final. 2021, we had the 100, which is, you know, transformed women's cricket in the UK. And then this year, we've had the WPL. And one of the interesting things about it is that um, that issuing of the first contracts by the ECB back in 2014 was a really significant moment. But I think that the thing that makes that work is being able to have a high-grade competition uh, that supports um, supports women. That that was true in Australia with the start of the WBBL, and, and clearly it's something that's going on, as you identify, with the 100 in the UK. But the other thing now is with the women's IPL, and I think it was the, the broadcast rights were sold for something like, I think it was 93 million pound which meant that the the whole franchises were clearly going to be able to afford to to pay significant amounts for marquee players which is what what we saw and you can you can bet that the standard of women's cricket as a consequence of the next two or three years of the women's IPL will just climb stratospherically um so i think we've got we've got some good years to look forward to around that Stephen. what i would say which i find interesting is there was a quiz in one of our australian papers at the weekend and it was it said australian women's cricket captain meg lanning has been in the role since 2014 how many test matches has she captained? So that's nine years captaining an Australian team. She has been captain in six test matches. Now, that tells you, I think, about the way that, the you know, the predominant form of the women's game has been the one-dayer, one day, the 50-over side, and more recently the T20. And obviously they form part of, the, the Ashes competition for um, for the women, uh, but it's if you talk to most of the most of the the women's players, what they want more of are tests, and I think it's one of those great things about those pioneers back in the day was that they were playing test matches. They were considered tests at three days each. Uh, and that's all they played, and uh, I think that's a really uh, it, it, it underlines fairly significantly how important the long form of the game is for both men and women. Yes, that's a very good point. I mean, Catherine Siverbrunt, who's just retired, I think she only played fourteen tests. I think in nearly twenty years. Mm, mm. Yeah. And it, it it is it's a it is something that uh, I think is is a bit of a blind spot 
um, with the games administrators. But here again, it's also about uh, patronage and, of course, you know, whether it's the 100 in your country or whether it's the WBBL here, it's about audiences and can you can you get people through the gate uh, for all those days? Anyway, uh, that's something that you and I won't be able to resolve. But I do notice that in your Australian fixtures that came out, I think, a day or two ago, South Africa, who are one of the women's teams touring Australia this winter, are going to play a test match against the Australian women. Yeah, which is great news, and I think long overdue. It shouldn't just be about us playing tests against India and uh, England. And I think, you know, this is where the leading countries have to do that responsibility of helping to promote the game elsewhere and uh, playing playing a test against South Africa will be a really good thing for South African cricket as well as certainly bringing a smile to the face of the the Aussie girls as well. Well, thank you very much, um, uh, Nick. I'd recommend anyone to listen to the Maiden Summer podcast. There's seven episodes. And just just to end, your reflections on the glory years of England versus Australia or Australia versus England test cricket in the 1930s. Yes, I, I think it was, a, it was a wonderful time. It was, it was a time for the Australian women in particular to, to find a way to transform their lives by exploring a sport that conventionally was not seen as a game that they could play and, and not a game that they could play at that level. But they broke through, they created something, and they established, I think, uh, a platform for all those who came after them in ways that they could never have predicted uh, but should always be lauded for. So I'd take my hat off to them. And just thinking, it's not that many years. We might even see centenary test matches, perhaps between England and Australia, to commemorate those two series that we've talked about today. Well, I hope I'm still around to see that, Stephen, because I'll be there. Well, thank you very much for being there on the paddock and the pavilion for today's podcast. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Sports Social Podcast Network.